Okay, the scripture this morning is James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. If you could stand for the reading of God's word. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet. You cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? But he gives us more grace. That is why the scripture says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. The word of the Lord. Well, you have to say that James has a good way of hitting you right between the eyes sometimes, doesn't he? Um, I just want to touch on a couple things that uh, are part of this scripture. Um, First of all, you know, especially at this time of the year, I think about the prophecies about Jesus and the Isaiah prophecy that talks about wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Um, what causes fights and quarrels among you? That's not very peaceful, is it? I don't think that's what Jesus wanted for his church. He's a prince of peace. He wants, he wants peace among us. He wants unity. He wants us to get along. And so I think James is dealing with that. There's some things going on here. And um, this is what's happening. This is what we need to do about it. Um, and the, the other thing I see um, um, is this thing about anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Now, let's get clear about something here. Paul is, uh, excuse me, James is not saying if you're friends with people who don't know Jesus, you've become an enemy of God. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about the things of the world. You know, the things... Fame and power and possessions and etc., 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 all those things that our world tends to place high value upon. If you become a friend of those things, if those are the things that are most important to you, if those are the things that basically have primacy in your life, then you are a friend of the world and you're not a friend of God. Are we clear on that? Okay. So, um, so who's James writing to? He's writing to the church. (laughs) 
which is kind of sad when you, when you read things like this, isn't it? What causes fights and quarrels among you? Um, don't they come from your desires which battle within you? You want, to, you want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet. Now, um, maybe this has happened, but I can't think of anybody who's been bodily killed in the church recently because of a quarrel or fight. But we do kill each other in a manner of speaking, don't we? It's like we can emotionally, verbally, right? Can't we do that? We kill each other. So that's what James is talking about here. So we have these, these um, it's, it's selfishness. We're, we're selfish. We have envy. And it leads to these issues. Let me, let me share a couple of, anybody here from southwest Kansas? No? Well, I've been to southwest Kansas. It's probably not a place you want to be from anyway. But people say that about where we lived in eastern Oregon, too. John Hildebrand, who, li- has, who has lived in the Artesian Valley near Fowler, Kansas, which is, happens to be where my brother-in-law Dean Walker's from, since he was two years old, remembers why the valley has the name it does. There were hundreds of natural springs in this valley. If you drilled a well for your house, the natural water pressure was enough to go through your hot water system and out the shower head. There were marshes in Fowler in the 1920s, where cattle sank to their bellies in mud, and the early settlers went boating down Crooked Creek in the shade of the cottonwoods as far as Mead, 12 miles away. Today, the creek is dry, the bogs and the springs have gone, and the inhabitants of Fowler must dig deeper and deeper wells to bring up water. The reason is plain enough. Seen from the air, the surrounding land is pockmarked with giant green disks excuse me, giant disks of green, quarter-section pivot irrigation systems, which water rich crops of corn, steadily depleting the underlying aquifer. Everybody in Fowler knows what is happening, but it is in nobody's interest to cut down his own consumption of water. That would just leave more for somebody else. 5,000 miles to the east, near the Spanish city of Valencia, the waters of the river Turia are shared by some 15,000 farmers in an arrangement that dates back at least 550 years and probably longer. Each farmer, when his turn comes, takes as much water as he needs from the distributory canal and wastes none. He is discouraged from cheating, watering out of turn, merely by the watchful eyes of his neighbors above and below him on the canal. If they have a grievance, they can take it to the uh, Tribuno de las Aguas, which meets on Thursday mornings outside the Apostles' Door of the Cathedral of Valencia. Records dating back to the 1400s suggest that cheating is rare. The Huerta of Valencia is a profitable region, growing at least two crops a year. Two irrigation systems, one sustainable and equitable and long-lived, and the other a doomed free-for-all. Two case histories cited by political scientists who struggle to understand 
the persistent human failure to solve common pool resource problems. The only way to avoid abuse is self-restraint, and yet nobody knows how best persuade, to persuade the human race to exercise self-restraint. Selfishness. <laughs> hmm. We have the same problem in eastern Oregon. If you fly over to that part of the country, you'll see the same thing. Big pivot, center pivot irrigation. They say that's what made that country. The problem is the aquifer is being tapped out. And nobody seems to be able to solve the problem because everybody still wants as much water as they can possibly get. So the, the, the conflict that arises from the inappropriate desire for that which we want to do not have is an age-old problem. Lucian said, all the evils which come upon man, revolutions and wars, stratagems and slaughters, spring from desire. All these things have their fountainhead in the desire for more. Plato said, the sole cause of wars and revolutions and battles is nothing other than the body and its desires. Cicero said, it is an insatiable... It is Insatiable desires which overturn not only individual men, but whole families, and which even bring down the state. From desires there spring hatred, schisms, discords, seditions, and wars. And boy, are we seeing that play out right in front of our own eyes. And so, James said, yeah, and there's some of that stuff happening in the church too. And so he, he contrasts two selves in this passage of Scripture. And first he talks about the selfish self. The selfish self wants but doesn't get. It kills and covets but cannot have. It quarrels and fights. That's the selfish self. Titus 3.3 3 says, At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Kind of describes the condition, not only of that place where Paul ministered, but really of our world. You, I think you can sense the dissatisfaction, the discontent, and the lack of fulfillment in what Paul writes there to Titus. We want, but we don't get. And sometimes we get, but we're still not satisfied. I think I've shared this illustration before. Of It was an advertisement that just impacted me. And it was on the television several years ago. And, and I, I, you, know, you know how they kind of uh, uh, condense a, a whole story into a, a minute or two in an advertisement. So you know from this ad that this guy has a computer system that he's saving up for. And the day comes when he's got the money. And he goes to the store and he buys a computer system. And he's driving home in his convertible. And in the back seat are these big boxes. All the computer equipment he's bought. And as he's driving down the road, he looks up at a billboard. And you know what? 
It's the newer, better system. And his countenance falls. Sometimes we do get, but we're still not satisfied. Sometimes we want, but we don't get. And you know, we can always kind of uh, put that in the realm of possessions, material things, but it's not always what we're talking about. Sometimes what we want is our own way. Has that ever happened in the church? Problems caused because someone wanted or someone's wanted their own way and didn't get it. And then quarrels and fights and conflicts break out. You know, there is a, a, a story in the, in the scripture. It's in the Old Testament in 1 Kings chapter 21. And the king at that time is Ahab, and he had a sweetheart of a wife named Jezebel. (laughs) Maybe she wasn't a sweetheart. And one day Ahab says, you know what, I've got a neighbor over here, I want to expand my garden. His name is Naboth, he has a vineyard. So he went to Naboth and he said, you know what, I'd like your vineyard because I want to grow a garden over here. And Naboth said, you know, this is my family inheritance has been with us for years and I, I, don't, want to, I don't want to sell it to you. And Ahab went home and pouted. So what it says, he went home and pouted. He wouldn't even eat his dinner that night. And Jezebel said, what's your problem? And he told So Ahab told her the story. I went to Naboth and he wouldn't sell his vineyard. (laughs) I want it. And so Jezebel came up with a plan to get it. And she had what they call, in the version I read, scoundrels make false claims about things that Naboth had said about the king and about God. And they did it in a public setting. And there was immediate judgment passed and Naboth was stoned to death. And guess what? Ahab got Naboth's vineyard. He coveted and ultimately killed literally to get what he wanted. And, and so James says that's what you do. You kill and you covet. Now we probably tend to kill more, um, Emotionally and spiritually, we kill people's reputation, things like that. We covet and we kill, and he says we quarrel and fight. Barclay says the ultimate choice in life lies between pleasing oneself and pleasing God. In a world in which man's first aim is to please themselves is a battleground of savagery and division. So you quarrel and fight. Because you want things and you don't get them. And he said, well, there's a reason for that. There's a reason you want things, or your own way maybe, and don't get it. And it's because we do not ask. We don't ask. We don't ask God. Again, Barclay said, only when a man realizes his own ignorance will he ask God's guidance. Only when a man realizes his own poverty and the things that matter will he pray 
for the riches of God's grace. Only when a man realizes his weakness in necessary things will he come to draw upon God's strength. Only when a man realizes his own sin will he realize the need for a Savior and God's forgiveness. But we don't realize those things, so we don't ask God. We don't go to God and ask. That's the first problem. He said the second problem is when we do ask, we ask with the wrong motives. He said our motives are envy and self-gratification. That's why we're asking for these things. Envy and self-gratification. No one can ever pray aright until he removes self from the center of his life and put God's, puts God there. And so instead of asking because we know that it will be pleasing to God or in keeping with God's will for our lives or benefit others, we ask because we're envious and just to gratify ourselves. That's, James says that's what's going on. Oh yeah, and he's writing to the church. You know, in 1 John 5.14 says, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Um, according to His will. Here's a problem we confront in our country with some of the gospel that's been preached. God's will for you is that you'll be rich and famous and healthy all the time and never have a problem in your life. And so if you believe that, then you might believe that you're asking according to God's will when you want, um, well, whatever it is you want. Because obviously God wants us to be happy, right? <laughs> we talked about that. Does God want to... Is it, it's, I think it's pretty obvious from the Scriptures to me that we won't be happy all the time. In this world you will have trouble, but don't be afraid I've overcome the world. Trouble tends not to be a happy thing. But we have this idea that's been told by the liar. We know who the liar is, don't we? Jesus said Satan is a liar. It's his native language. That's what he speaks. That we should be happy all the time. And if I'm going to be happy all the time, there's certain stuff that I need to make me happy. Right? We just got to have stuff. Or money. I mean, some people, they don't, they don't need the stuff. They just need to know they've got a lot of money somewhere. Have you ever read about those people who supposedly died in poverty and then they found someone found out they were rich? Or, well, there's a lot of other things we think we need to make us happy, you know, like to be well known. Everybody knows who I am. Or to be really, really, I just want, I know I don't have the talent and ability, but I just want to be really, really good at this thing anyway. Wouldn't it be great if I was just a star athlete? 
whenever I went to the airport, people would point at me and say, hey, there's Sid Seaver. He's the quarterback of the Seattle Seahawks. Because I don't know if I want to be the quarterback of the Broncos, the quarterback of the Broncos right now. Anyway, so we ask with the wrong motives, because generally when we, what Paul, excuse me, James is talking about here is people who ask for stuff that will just make them happy. It's for self-gratification. It's because the guy down the street just bought a 2018, and I know the 19s are out now, and I need a 19. And that's our motivation Paul Cedar has said, the focus of Christian living and the motive of prayer are the same. God has called us to forsake doing our own thing and seek to do the will of God. And sometimes we don't want to know the will of God because it doesn't line up with what we want, right? So we do not ask, and when we do ask, we ask with the wrong motives. And then we need to be careful who we befriend. You know... Most of us, uh, we've raised our kids. There was a point in time when we were concerned about the friends that our kids chose. Right? And there's a reason for that. You know, the influence, the activities. I mean, we wanted to, them to choose wisely. We didn't want them to get involved in things that were ungodly, get them in trouble, etc., etc. Well, James warns us here. He says that friendship with the world is spiritual infidelity. Friendship with the world is spiritual infidelity. Isaiah 54, verse 5, For your Maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is His name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. So God looks at us in this, like, he compares it often to his people and himself as a marriage relationship. God is our husband. And James talks about here friendship with the world. And if we're friendship with the world, that makes us what? An enemy of God. It's spiritual infidelity. It's like when we, well, it's like the Old Testament prophets talked about. And that I, I mentioned in my prayers this morning, I'm reading through Ezekiel right now. And God talks about the idols that these people worshipped. And they re- worshipped them for a reason, because each of these false gods supposedly could do certain things for you that you wanted done. Whether it was providing rain at the right time of the year, or a uh, uh, a uh, 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 fertility so that your livestock would produce offspring and the, and the herds would grow or health or whatever it might be. So we had all these things that these idols would... And God looked at this and said, wait a minute, I am your husband. I'm the only one that you're supposed to have loyalty to. And when you choose to worship these idols, in essence... You are being an adulterous people. You are cheating on your husband. It's spiritual infidelity. You are in love with the world and the things of the world. 
Jeremiah 3.20, But like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you have been unfaithful to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. So friendship with the world is in God's eyes spiritual infidelity. We don't love him. We have become his enemy. That's what James tells us. And God does not allow for split loyalties. God does not allow for split loyalties. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 and 16, it says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. Split loyalties. By the way, even in their idol worship, that's where the people of Israel and Judah found themselves. Because oftentimes there would be this idol and that idol and that idol, but they would still worship God as a part of that. Talk about split loyalties. They were covering all their bases. Matthew 6.24 says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. In this case, God does not allow for split loyalties. And then James moves on to talk about the selfless self. We've talked about the selfish self and the issues that arise there. How about the selfless self? Well, if you would be selfless, he says, you must come near to God. And he tells us how we do that. Here's how we come near. First of all, we submit to God. It's not a word we especially like in our culture, submit or submission. But that's what he says we are to do. And you know, that somewhat has to do with where we come from as a nation and as a culture. We did not want to submit to, a, to an unjust king, so people jumped on a boat and they came to America. Alright? So that whole submission thing sometimes gets, runs crossways with us. But James says we must submit to God. Alexander the Great and a small company of soldiers approached a strongly fortified walled city. Alexander, standing outside the walls, raised his voice and demanded to see the king. When the king arrived, Alexander insisted that the king surrender the city and its inhabitants to Alexander and his little band of fighting men. The king laughed, why should I surrender to you? You can't do us any harm. But Alexander offered to give the king a demonstration. He ordered his men to line up, single file, and start marching. He marched them straight toward a sheer cliff. The townspeople gathered on the wall and watched in shocked silence as one by one, Alexander's soldiers marched without hesitation right off the cliff to their deaths. After ten soldiers died, Alexander ordered the rest of the men to return to his side. The townspeople and the king immediately surrendered to Alexander the Great. They realized that if a few men were actually willing to commit suicide at the command of this dynamic leader, then nothing could stop him 
from eventual victory. They were so submitted to and committed to Alexander the Great that they knew that they could not stand against men who were that submitted to their leader. So the question is, and, and James is calling this for this here, have you submitted yourself to, to the will of God as completely as these soldiers who took this order from Alexander the Great? Just as the king and the townspeople were frightened into surrendering by this demonstration of total submission, so is Satan frightened when he sees a man or woman who has completely submitted themselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And when he sees that, it puts him to flight. But as long as Satan sees signs of rebellion in us, he knows that there is hope and that he can turn you to his side And so he attacks with full force. We must be submitted to God. Listen, in submission, the will and desires of the other, of God, become more important than our own. And then James says, uh, you need to submit to God and you need to repent. I think sometimes we've made... um, an easy Christianity. We've, we've come and we've said to people, confess your sins, and we've left it there. And we are to confess our sins, but then we're to repent of those sins. We're going to, we're to turn away and walk in a new direction, right? That's what the scripture says. And he says, repent of your selfishness. And he, he uses some, some word pictures here. He says, wash your hands. It says, and this is outward and deals with our conduct. He says, purify your hearts. This is inward and deals with motive. He says, grieve, mourn, and wail, which indicates seriousness of intent. This is something genuine that's happening here. This is not just to show and then we go on like Nothing ever happened. The, the Message Bible clears this a little more by saying this. Hit bottom and cry your eyes out. The fun and games are over. Get serious, really serious. Get down on your knees before the Master. It is the only way you'll get back on your feet. So we're to repent and then we're to resist the devil. We can do that. We wouldn't be told to do it if it weren't possible. Right? So how do we resist? Well, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. In 1 Peter 5 verses 8 and 9, he writes, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in the faith because you know that your brothers and sisters throughout the world are undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. How do we resist him? We do it with the truth. Just as Jesus did in the wilderness when he was tempted. And oh, by the way, you need to have a grasp of the truth to use the truth against him, right? 
The next thing we do is humble yourself before God. We have a tendency to say, yeah, but God, the reason is because... No, we admit to, we confess our sin. Remember Flip Wilson? The devil made me do it. No, we, we don't do that. We humble ourselves for God and we admit, you know what, this is my choice. It was wrong, it was sin against you. Did you know that in 1 Kings chapter 21, Ahab, the bad king Ahab, humbled himself when confronted by God for his sin? And God relented in bringing punishment in his day? You know, there, I think there are some characters in the Scripture, maybe in the world we live in, and we look at them and say there's no way. There's no way that they would ever humble themselves before God. You know, maybe the worst king in Israel's history was Manasseh. And he repented. Ahab repented. They humbled themselves before God. And because of that, they received His forgiveness. The Scripture in 2 Samuel 22, verse 8 says, You save the humble, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them low. In 1 Chronicles seven fourteen, and we know this one well, we hear it often, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sins and heal their land. And there's some problems with that verse because, number one, we're told to humble ourselves. Oh, we, we don't do that. We're Americans. We're the, and we're the greatest country on the earth. And, We submit to no one. Well, we do submit to God. And pray. And seek my face. Well, see, one of the things about us is that we don't need to pray because we can do this ourselves. We've learned to depend on our financial institutions and our military and the government. So we don't need to pray. And seek my face to seek God and to turn from their wicked ways. What do you mean turn from our wicked ways? What wicked ways? See, there's less and less that's wicked in our minds. Right? A lot of things that God has said eternally were wicked, we're saying, oh no, not that one, that's not wicked anymore. We're, we've, we've gotten smarter. We know better now. Things have changed. Right? Things have changed. And so it might have been wicked at one time, but it's not wicked anymore. And they're just, we keep crossing things off the list that God said are wicked. If my people, oh man, that's us. If my people who are called by my name 
And you need to because there's fights and quarrels among you. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I then. Boy, this is the good news part that we have to hang on to, isn't it? I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and, oh God, heal their land. And the church is in the land. Amen? Amen. Amen. Um, If those who will be serving communion would